Welcome to the Kingstonian, a program that profiles individuals who are passionate about what they do for a living, about what organization they belong to, or simply passionate about the community they are a part of. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the program. My name is Dave Cunningham, and this is Singer-Songwriter Month here on the Kingstonian. And on today's program, we're going to take a little drive east to the lovely town of Gananoque and talk with Cliff Edwards. Welcome. Thank you. Good to see you, Dave. Cliff is back on our program, and what I thought we would do today is change the focus from what we talked about before and talk a little bit about the business of the music business. And uh, you have been around uh, playing for a long time. Mm -hmm. Why don't you give our audience a brief history? So you would have started back in high school and worked your way to forming the Bells. Exactly, yes. That... uh I had a. I was involved in music early on when, in high school, and in when I was about sixteen years old, um, and started to play in a typical high school band, um, playing music of the day. And at that time, was a lot of it was country music, uh, Hank Williams, Johnny Cash, and Carl Perkins, and rockabilly uh, mm-hmm. music. And we formed a band, and then um, I graduated from high school. Uh, place called Lake of Two Mountains High School, a little town called saint eustache sur le lac in Quebec, and um, went to Ecole des Beaux-Arts because I wanted to be a commercial artist, and uh, I thought, and uh, spent uh, a few years, got a job at Eaton's in the advertising department while I was doing that. And I was playing on the weekends and mm-hmm. formed another band um, uh, on the weekends to play sort of more rock and roll as we moved into the rock and roll era and we started mm-hmm. to play. And so uh, did that for a, a few years and um, was playing up north of Montreal in a ski resort called St. Sauveur. And we'd play every Sunday afternoon. And uh, there was a few other musicians who were playing in that area at the same time. And a couple of girls who were playing with Martin Butler in a folk group used to come over on a Sunday and um, danced. And we asked him to come up and sing one time. And the two of them sang uh, Downtown by Petula Clark, if you remember that song. Uh-huh. I remember that song. <laughs> and uh, I had a manager at the time, Kevin Hunter, who listened to them. And we drove home together and he, we talked about the possibility of forming a new group and adding the girls. And that was the birth of what then was known as the Five Bells. Uh-huh. And we became a, a highly polished nightclub act. Because at that time, nightclubs were a big thing where artists were coming in and doing shows in clubs all over North America, really. It was a big scene mm-hmm. uh, at that time. Uh, the Platters and a whole pile of groups who were big in the 50s and 60s end up playing nightclubs, dinner clubs, supper clubs. And we became an act like that. And we played all over North America doing supper clubs. And we weren't recording at all. Mm-hmm. We, we didn't need to, really. We had a an act, a musical act, that was doing well. My impression is is that back in that particular era, 
a lot of the performing artists weren't writing their own music. They That's were, true. They were playing music that had been written by somebody else. That's true. So you are now with the Five Bells, and you're touring around, playing different supper clubs all over the place. That's right. Are you starting to write your own stuff in your own head at that point? No, not yet. I think I was more concerned at the time um, about the act, if you mm-hmm. will, and the show and the audience and the music we're going to pick to make that show work. Mm-hmm. So it was very controlled in terms of what we had to do to appeal to the audience. So the, uh, I was not uh, even remotely thinking at that time about writing my own songs. I was more concerned about the music we're going to pick for this act to really, really do well. And so the writing side of my life was not yet uh, being approached. At what point did you start to think about recording? Well, uh, we got hired by Campbell's Soup, believe it or not, to do a film, like an info, an infomercial, but it lasted about half an hour or so, maybe even longer, I don't know. And they fictitiously wrote this script about a group who was f- going to be formed while we were on the road to these places where they served food and these recipes could be done at home through Campbell's Soup. Mm-hmm. This this whole idea is pretty bizarre. <laughs> uh, but as an, I'll give you one little scene as an example. It's quite funny. Um, where we would, Anne and I, would be on the beach in Santa Monica, and then we fly to San Francisco because we were on a, a little music thing trying to figure out what to do and how to form a group. The, 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 uh, one of the people on the plane... It was a airline attendant, Jackie, uh, sang into the mic. And we said, we should ask Jackie if she'd like to join the group. And the food that they were serving on the plane was, you could have this at home by Campbell's Soup. So this is all part of the script. Yes, right. So this is the sort of the food with the music. So the, the band from, but in all of that, Jackie and I and the group were asked to write the music for the film. We wrote. That's when the writing started. Okay. Now, at some particular point, uh, you start to go into the studio to record, and mm-hmm. some and sometimes you're recording your own stuff, and sometimes you're recording other people's material. Yes. And before we started recording this interview here, we talked about a couple of stories, and I want to make sure we get to them because I like the stories. One of them concerns the big hit, Stay a While. Yes. But tell us the story of the conversation you had with... Ken Tobias. Actually, it wasn't a conversation. You just took a song and just redid it, right. basically. Right. What was the song like before you redid it? Well, um, fortunately, uh, we had recorded, as I said, and uh, an album came out uh, with the music that we did for the film. And a song, Booty Manitoba Morning, got lots of airplay in Canada. And then nothing happened. And then, um, so the act went on the road again, and the group had changed to the Bells. Frank Mills had joined the band. Uh, Jackie was the only one female fronting it with me. Anne and I were married then. And we changed the band and went back to the same places. And our manager said, we should do something. And we talked about recording again. So I, I went looking for songs. I went to the bar in Montreal, the Cafe Andre, where Ken Tobias was playing. And I used to listen to him quite a bit. Liked his music. And managed to secure a reel-to-reel tape of the live performance of his. And 
listened to it and heard Stay A While and decided to make that as one of our songs we'd record uh, in a four-song set at Andre Perry's first studio. And so we recorded that song, but his version, to go to your question, was originally a folk song, much more up-tempo than the final version that was recorded by us. And so without even consulting Ken, I changed the version of the song. Not the lyric or not the melody, but the approach. Mm -hmm. And made it a guy-girl ballad that we thought suited our group. Mm -hmm. And Ken never heard it until somebody called him. He was living in Los Angeles at the time. Somebody called him, a friend of his, and said, Ken, one of your songs is doing really well in Canada. And he goes, what are you talking about? He said, well, this group, The Bells recorded your song and it's being played everywhere he said really so he listened to the song and he disliked it intensely <laughs> because there was nothing like the version he had originally and I heard it about it through my manager and stuff who he'd call I said what what's this you know however you, you'd sort of take a song and you make it your own if you can yeah. version wise and so Ken didn't like it, but when the thing sold a million copies, um, I think he learned to like it a lot more. <laughs> and I think for people who may not be aware of how the business works, yes. is that the composer yes. gets a piece of the pie when a record does really well and it sells a lot of copies. Every time it is played, he Dave, gets a piece of the he pie. He gets a piece of it. The publisher and the writer gets a piece of that song every time it is played. Now, you can imagine a hit song in the early days of top 20 radio, mm -hmm. how many times that would be played all over North America and ultimately the world? And this is in the early 70s we're talking about here. Yes, we're in 1970. When, I, I think I'm going to run out of time on this program again, but <laughs> one of the things I liked was the story about, uh, and this is something that I would imagine most artists go through, is if they have several songs that they have recorded, and they have to pick one to release as a single, which yes. is something that was done quite a bit back in those particular days of Top 40 Radio. Right. So you're sitting with these songs, and you have just released Fly, Little White Dove, Fly, right. and it did reasonably well yes, for you. Yep. So you're looking to release another song from that same collection, yes. and you're in a bar yeah. in Windsor? In yeah, Windsor, in the top hat. In the middle of winter. Right, right. In the middle of a blizzard. That's right. And there's hardly anybody in the club that you're at except for four people. That's right. <laughs> and who are those four people? <laughs> the four people are Rosalie Tremblay, Alden Deal, and two of the people that work at CKLW Radio, the Big Eight in Windsor. Which, which at was the time... the biggest radio station in Canada because it, its signal went all the way to Cleveland and Detroit and, and further east and west than that. And so we did a sm short set. And came down, and I sat and talked to them, and they congratulated us on Fly Little White. The Fly, and Rosalie said to me, Cliff, we've really done with Fly. It's it's had its run. Have you thought about the next single? And I said, well, not really. He said, well, I listened to the album before we came down here to hear the show. And there's one song in there, I think, if if that became a single, we would go on it. I said, what's that? She said, stay a while. So suddenly... 
somebody else had heard the album who had ears. Rosalie Trombley is a famous, famous radio uh, programmer, program director. And so we, our manager heard and called the, the record company and said, guess what the next single is going to be? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they said, okay, if CKLW is going to play it, we better play it. And so we better release it. And so that became the next single. And then all of a sudden, it catches fire. I mean, it, when that station starts to play it, it goes across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody's playing. Everybody's playing it. And then you've got to figure out, okay, how are we going to get the records in the stores and blah, blah. That's the business of behind how the records get to the people. Stay a while by the bells. Sold how many copies? A million. A million million, copies. Over a million, yeah. Okay, so the uneducated person who may not know too much about the business of the music business would say, you sold a million copies, you're set for life. You've got the retirement fund set away. True? Wrong. Wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I tell you why it's wrong. If you you know about the business of writing, um, every time it's plays, as I said earlier, the publisher and the writer make money. We make money from the sales of the actual single or the album. All the costs of production of that come off the top first mm-hmm. before we see any money. Um, and so we are making our money as concert performers, as concert performers. Right. So our costs are going up. So we're making money as a band playing live and, and making money from record sales over time. But the big money is being made by the writer and the publisher because there's longevity for each song, right? And they continue to get paid. And they the continue to get paid as played. But we, if our if our records are not selling as much later on, um, then our concert draw is less. Um, and we didn't write the song, so we're not participating, participating in any income. Uh, and so what happens is the writer and publisher goes on and on and on mm-hmm. and the act doesn't and that's when this idea of neighboring rights came in which is paying the performer some money when those songs were hits over a long period of time okay for the listener when uh, radio stations play the songs uh, we including cfrc does send off some cash on an annual basis yes to socan which yes. is the music publishing outfit in canada yes and there's one in the states as well so yes. that's how the money gets distributed to the composer and to the uh, publishing company that's, itself that's, that's exactly right so unless you are uh, selling millions of records on a regular basis yes. most of your money would come by performing that's right okay so from your perspective, uh, you you performed with the Bells, and then the group broke up. Yep, after a decade, yeah. And in terms of the detail of all of that story, I will again plug the movie that is on Netflix. Yes, sure. The documentary that was put together by your daughter. Yes. Jennifer? Jess- Jessica. Jessica, sorry. And it's called Stay a While yep. as well. So th- there's a flick if you've got Netflix uh, search for Stay a While, and it's a documentary well worth watching. It was very well done. But it gives you the whole background. Right, right. So so eventually, at some particular point, you decided to go solo, and then you basically left the business for a while yes. and and took on some other jobs, and that's where you and I first met was you were working as a sales rep at that's the radio station right. that you and I worked at. That's right. 
And then at some point you decide to get back into music. Mm -hmm. But tell me the sorts of things that you are doing now with your music and well, other people's music. Well, it's it, interesting is that, you know, when we start, when I, we started talking about this, uh, the Bells were, a, you know, a show, an act, uh, doing other people's material. And that still stays with me because I love great songs. So I'm writing songs, yes, but I'm also appreciating other people's music. And so I'm recognizing that a lot of people who are in my age group and younger, some and some older, depends, um, love those early songs as well. Um, and so I created shows that celebrated the music of some of those artists. Um, Gord Lightfoot, Ian Tyson, Neil Young, um, Neil Diamond, I could go on. And I've created a series of shows. The Carpenters. The Carpenters, a series of shows uh, that uh, feature the music of those people. We don't try to be those people. We celebrate the music because the songs are great and they live forever. Mm -hmm. And so we we did a cabaret series at the uh, Fire Hall of the Thousand Island Playhouse for the last six years, actually. And now we're actually doing shows like that uh, on board the Island Star here in Kingston because the people who book those tours also love the mm -hmm. music of that time. So it's two-sided, my life at the moment. My life is now creating shows from music I love and also writing music myself for release as a singer-songwriter. Now, having gone to one of the cabaret shows that featured you singing some of the songs of Neil Diamond. Yes. And the young lady's name. Jan Wilkins. Singing the songs of Karen and Richard Carpenter. Yes. And that was a well-done show. And like you say, it's a cabaret style where you do some of Neil Diamond's songs and then she comes on and does some songs yes. by the Carpenters and uh, yes. you do some songs together. That's so right. It's a great approach and it's for... Like you say, the audience that was there was primarily people who would have listened to those things when they came out in the 60s and 70s and 80s. That's right. And that sort of thing. Yeah. When it comes to writing songs now, so uh, are you writing songs because you have things that you want to get out and you want to put them on a disc and have people enjoy them? And Is that the primary reason as opposed to making money from the... Yes, I think you're, you know, you're, you're right there. I think... Um, um, after I've gone through many careers in my life um, and, and I've gone back into music, I was sitting quietly with my guitar and I had a lot of things to, to say uh, and I thought I could write again. And so things started to fall out of me as a writer and I'd write them down and, and then I would decide if I had enough, I would record again because I love the process the creative process of recording. I mm -hmm. love it, getting some great musicians and arranging a song and, and that whole thing of mixing and stuff. I really love that. I loved it with the bells. I love it now still. So I thought if I'm going to get back into playing music, I want to do the whole thing again right? for the love of it. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily to think I'm going to go rushing out and now I'm going to sell a million copies of something. That's not in the in the head at all at the moment. I mean, you still have to do with an album that comes out the very things you're supposed to do, but the business has changed so dramatically. Uh, the record, you know, record companies are not signing artists and, you know, uh, they're, they're becoming service organizations. We'll help you market your product. We'll help you, you know, master it. We can, but they're not signing artists the way it was in the past. So you have to do a lot of it yourself. Right. Uh, and put it up online and on the internet and, when it comes to um, 
keeping track of all of this, it's almost as if you do have to have a manager or someone else who monitors all of this stuff for you. And then it comes back to how serious do you want to be about getting back into that whole rigmarole of touring. And and to me, it seems like you get to a certain age and you say, you know, I'm comfortable here in Gananoque. I've got a lot of friends here. I've got family here. I'm not going to spend the rest of my life on the road. I think you're right. I think um, you have to come to a point where what is your life going to be about and how do you want to live your life? And if music is a part of it, how do you want music to be a part of it? Mm-hmm. And so music is a part of my life. Um, I'm still in that creative mode in the sense that creating shows or creating music. And as long as I can do that and I feel confident and comfortable that when I walk on stage that I'm all right physically and emotionally, that in fact people are still wanting to hear the music and I have to know when that isn't possible. Um but that's I'm doing it for the love of it now, and it gives me a whole new sense of appreciating music again uh, from my own perspective. And I don't have any illusions, and I don't really... I like to travel and sing. I just was in Switzerland, and I sang in a bar there, and the place was full. They they were advertising it, and, cool. and they wanted to hear my music. And so there are people who want to hear what I have to sing about, but it isn't... I'm not touring on a regular basis. I'm <laughs> just choosing where I'd like to play. And um, I'm still creating, as much as I can, uh, new music. Cliff, thank you very much for coming in. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for having me, Dave. This show is produced in collaboration with CFRC at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, with infrastructure support from Queen's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Find more great podcasts at podcasts.cfrc.ca.